You're listening to audio from the archive of Highland Baptist Church. For more information about Highland, go to hbcwaco.org. When you walked in this morning, you should have received a bulletin, and inside of that bulletin, you'll find some teaching notes if you want to kind of follow along this morning with where we're headed. A few Sundays ago, we began a brand new series called The Conquerors. And The Conquerors is going to take us through uh, the book of Judges, at least the first six chapters of the book of Judges. Probably in two or three years from now, we'll come back and pick up the rest of the book of Judges. But for right now, we're going to just go from chapter 1 to chapter 6 and look into the lives of these men and women who were conquerors. And from their lives, extrapolate hopefully some characteristics that you and I can repeat ourselves so that we might be conquerors in Christ Jesus this week. At the top of your notes, to make a statement. It's a little platform statement, kind of a, a jumping off point, if you will. And it simply says there that all of us in life will either be conquered by this life or will be conquerors in life through the power of God. So for all of us in this room this morning, those two things are going to happen this week. Either life is going to conquer you this week by stress and by schedule and being overwhelmed and anxious and letting your schedule rule you instead of letting you rule your schedule, or You'll be conquerors this week through the power of God, which reigns mightily within you as a follower of Christ. With your Bible this morning, or your iPad, or your smartphone, or your tablet, or your friend's Bible who is sitting next to you, will you turn with me, please, to the book of Judges. It's the seventh book in the Old Testament, and go to chapter 3 with me, please. Judges chapter 3, and we'll be in that book and in that chapter the remainder of this morning. Judges chapter 3, if you get there, I'll get there myself. And keep your Bible open. If you're kind of new to Highland, just know we love teaching and preaching God's Word because it is God's Word. And so we'll keep God's Word open, make sure we understand what God is saying to us, not just the opinions of man, but the truth that is breathed from God into His Word. So Judges chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 12, looking at a brand new judge this morning. We have looked at Caleb two weeks ago, Othniel last week, and now a man by the name of Ehud that we will look at together today. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to assume you're there. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. If you've been here the last two weeks, that phrase should sound very familiar to you. Once again, the Israelites did wrong. Once again, the Israelites sinned. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And before you and I judge the Israelites, if they weren't doing it, we would be doing it, correct? In fact, just like they did it, so we do too. We are wondering people. It's amazing how quickly you and I can do wrong in the eyes of God. It's amazing how quickly we can break the law of God, how quickly we can break the heart of God. And if you're a believer in Christ here today, I know that's kind of disappointing about ourselves sometimes. Let me just tell you, if you're a believer in Christ, your soul is redeemed, your spirit is promised forever in the kingdom of God, but darn it, we're still wrapped up in this filthy flesh. And in this filthy flesh, we continue to wander away from God. So if it wasn't the Israelites, it would be Highland Baptist. Once again, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Once again, broke the law and broke the heart of God. I've said before, if it wasn't Adam and Eve that first brought sin into the world, it would have been John Durham and his wife Jennifer. It would have been us. Because all of us have that, that propensity to wander away from the holiness of God, from the law of God, the command of God, and become small g gods ourselves. All that said, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. 
getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, in your Bible, there's probably a little notation there that lets you know what city that is. It's the city of Jericho, the oldest city in the world. Um, I've been there four times, and I promise you, the outskirts of Jericho look like Fort Lauderdale, Florida. There are still palm trees all around the old city of Jericho. And so here's Jericho, all the way back in Judges, known as the city of palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Once more, this is the cycle we've been looking at. Uh, God's people rebel. God sends a response in the form of discipline or the form of judgment toward his people. Then God's people begin to repent, as we see happening right here. They call out for someone to deliver them, and God calls up a rescuer. And here we see that. Verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he, God, gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite. And the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Well, let's stop right there and look at this king by the name of Eglon, and this conqueror by the name of Ehud. In your teaching notes this morning, you can follow along. If you didn't get teaching notes, you can write down some notes yourself, or you can kind of just follow and absorb all the things that are being shared with you this morning. The first thing I want you to see comes all the way back from verse 12, and here it is. God uses the godless to teach and to test the godly. Did you see what was happening back in verse 12? It was not that Eglon, the king of Moab, in his power or his strength, came in and overwhelmed and occupied the land of Israel. It was that God allowed Eglon, the Moabite king, to come in and to dominate his people. This is something we don't talk about very much, but it has to do with the sovereignty of God. Listen, friends, either God has his hand over everything or his hand over no thing. There's nothing in between. And here, God even allows this pagan, Canaanite, Moabite king by the name of Eglon to come in and to dominate the people of God. I'll tell you, God allows the godless to teach and to train and to test the godly. That's why some of you are in a workplace and you have a godless boss. And you complain and you gripe and you wonder when he's going to retire or she's going to leave. What if? God gave you a godless boss to test you, to teach you, and to train you. What about a godless roommate, college students? Don't point fingers, please, at your godless roommates. But what if God gave you a godless roommate in order to teach you and to train you and to test you as a godly man or a a godly woman? How about a coworker that you work with? What about a godless neighbor? We all have godless neighbors, don't we, in our neighborhood? Someone that God planned, I know, I'm going to see one day in heaven, God planted certain neighbors around me all throughout my life to test me, to teach me, to train me in righteousness, to test me in patience, to test me in forgiveness of how far my forgiveness might go. God will put godless neighbors around us to teach and to train and to test the godly. God will put godless governors and godless Supreme Court justices and godless presidents over a country to teach and to train and to test the godly. Do not discount the sovereignty of God in your life and in the church as the people of God and in our nation and in nations around the world. Eglon's a very interesting guy. His name means fat calf. 
and you didn't like your name that much coming into here, but now fat, your name doesn't sound that bad compared to fat cow or fat calf, correct? That's what his name means. Eglon, his name means fat calf, and he, as we will see soon enough, will live up to his name. Uh, we don't know if he actually uh, got that name later on once people saw him, what he looked like, or if he had that name as a child and grew into that name, but his name, Eglon, it means a fat cow or a fat calf, and he bowed down to two things. He bowed down to his own flesh. He bowed down to his own desires. He bowed down and gave in to his own appetites. And so here is Eglon, the king of Moab. His name means fat calf, and he bowed down to two things, to his own flesh, to his own desires, but secondly, he bowed down to a god by the name of Molech. Molech was a Moabite, an Amorite, and a Malachite god, small g god, a god that they worshiped, an idol. And perhaps you've seen pictures of this idol before, or you may be very familiar with Molech, but Molech, ironically, had the face of a cow. He was very rotund, very large, made out of, out of, uh, out of stone, and in the large belly of Molech was a fire. They would throw wood in there and catch that wood on fire, and that fire in the belly of Molech would, would burn all throughout a day of sacrifice and a day of altar. Molech's arm, or Molech's arms were, were designed where they went straight out like this. And there would be a, a rope that they would tie around the neck of Molech, the, the graven god made of stone. And they would wrap up a child, a Moabite child, and a Malachite child, an Amorite child, and would put it into the arms of, of Molech. And Molech's mouth was wide open with the fire in the belly, the face of a cow, and they would pull Molech back with that rope. And that child would roll into the empty mouth of Molech would drop down into the burning wood inside of the belly of Molech, and that would be a sacrifice on the altar to their God. That's the God, don't lose this, that's the God that Eglon bowed down to. He bowed down to his own appetite, his own flesh, his own desires, and he bowed down to a graven idol, a graven image by the name of Molech that would sacrifice children into a large-bellied, cow-faced idol. What about Ehud? Ehud, he's our guy for today, or Ehud, actually is how you'd say it in Hebrew, Ehud. Ehud, his name means united with God. It is still a strong name in Israel today. Um, Ehud Olmert was the defense minister of Israel back in the 1990s, the prime minister of Israel back from uh, uh, 2006 to 2011. Another Ehud, um, Ehud Barak was also one of the prime ministers of Israel in the last five years. That's a strong name in Israel. It means one who is united with God. And who did Ehud bow down to? He bowed down to the God of Israel. So you have Eglon, fat cow, bowing down to his flesh, bowing down to Molech. You have Ehud, who is bowing down to the God of Israel. His name means united with God. And here's the point I want to make to all of you this morning. You see this in your notes. and It's a really good thing to hold on to. Our lives take on the characteristics of the God to whom we truly bow down. You begin to take on the same characteristics of the God to whom you truly bow down. Eglon begins to look like the God he's worshiping. But Ehud begins to look like the God that he is worshiping as well in courage and in strength and being called up in the power of God and the name of God to deliver the people of God. So what what God do you truly bow down to? If you bow down to materialism, you will find yourself this week growing more 
and more greedy. Why? Because you'll look just like the God that you worship. Or perhaps you might bow down to the God of self-image and self-management, what you look like and comparing yourself to others. Can I tell you that this week, if you bow down to that God, you'll become more and more concerned on how you look and what people say about you. Because our lives will take on the characteristics of the God to whom we truly bow down. Let's continue with the story. It gets really good right here. The weak now confounds the strong. Look at Judges chapter 3, verse 16. Let's continue on with this great story. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword, about 18 inches long, a foot and a half, or some of your Bibles say a cubit, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. I'm not real sure how else to put that. He was corpulous. He was abdominous. He was the job of the hut of the Old Testament. He was just this large man with a lot of rolls of fat. We're going to get to that here in just a second. He lived up to his name of being a fat calf, a fat man, a fat cow, if you will. Just, I don't write this. I just preach this. This is what exactly what it says you know, here, here in the Bible. He presented the tribute uh, to Eglon, the king of Moab. So that makes Ehud, this is interesting, a man who is divvying up the tribute to present to the dominating king, uh, King Eglon, the Moabite. So he, Ehud, would bring the tribute in. He would divide it out. If you grew up in church, you might know this word, a tithe. It was 10%. And so here is Ehud, who really is serving as an accountant for Israel, counting up the tribute, whether he was bringing grain or bringing coins or, or bringing uh, um, clothing to him, to, to uh, Eglon, the Moabite king. He was counting up the 10%, counting up the tribute, and making sure that it was brought into the court of Eglon. So really what we have here in the Old Testament is an accountant who is making sure that all the beans add up and all the numbers add up and the exact number of tribute, amount of tribute is brought to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute as an accountant, he sent on their way the men who had carried all this stuff, all the tribute. At the idols near Gigal, Gilgal, he himself, meaning Ehud, turned back and said, so let me stop right there. So Ehud leaves, and his men who had been carrying this tribute, they leave, and they make their way all the way to Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was a place where the Ebenezer stones had been set. Ebenezer stones means that uh, the Israelites had placed the stones there, and Ebenezer meaning, thus far, God has helped us. It was also, you might find of interest, the very first place, once they crossed into the promised land, that the Israelites took Passover together as the people of God. In other words, Gilgal was a very sacred place place the Israelites. So Ehud and his men, they left the palace, they left Jericho, they make their way to Gilgal, and something hits Ehud. Nostalgia, memories, stories of being a young, as a young Israelite boy, hearing the stories of God's faithfulness, and he turns back around, and look what he says. He comes back and he says to the king, I have a secret message for you, O king. And it was a pointed message. You'll get that tomorrow. It was a pointed message. I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet. And all of his attendants left him. In other words, mom and dad, you know, when you're trying to make, have a telephone conversation or trying to send out an email and your kids are running around your feet and you finally say, quiet, please leave the room. I need some time. I need to concentrate. I need to kind of think through what's going on. This is what the king says to his people. Eglon says, I want the room cleared. I want some time with this guy who says he has a special message 
for me. I'm thinking Eglon might have thought it was like some Shipley's Donuts or something. He was about to get from him. Quiet, everybody leave. I don't want to share this. Ehud then approached Eglon while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached out with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out of the back of Eglon. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. This is better than any romance novel you're going to read this week. This is awesome. (laughs) Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And after he had gone, the servants, Eglon's servants, came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. It's, uh, some of your Bibles have a different little Hebraic expression there. It says, his clothing must be covering his feet. It's this, <laughs> yeah, you, you can get the visual there. He has taken off his toga and it is dropped to his feet. That's an old Hebraic saying. He must be, we say in America, he must be using the bathroom. He must be going to the bathroom. NIV rendered it, he, he is relieving himself. But if you grew up in the Old Testament and you had to go to the bathroom, you would say, hey, I'm about to go let my clothes drop over my feet. And that means I'm about to use the restroom, about to relieve myself. And so that's what, what Eglon is doing. He must be relieving himself, they said, in the upper room of the house. Oh, it gets better. Verse 25. So they waited there outside the bathroom to the point of embarrassment of all gosh I love this story this has always been one of my favorite as a kid I heard this story I was like are you serious that's in the bible that's amazing a sword going through the fat belly of a guy and his hand gets stuck in the fat rolls and there's a guy who who's in a bathroom and they're waited to the point of embarrassment have you been there before right <laughs> we're like your friends go off and hey I'm gonna use the restroom I'll be right back and then you don't see them for two or three or five or ten or fifteen minutes and you're thinking should I knock? Should I text? Should I just sit here and wait for a while? Like, what's the appropriate amount of time before you go in and rescue somebody from the restroom or knock on a door? I mean, this, that, this is as old as 3,000 years ago. People would wait to the point of embarrassment going, you know, does he need toilet paper? Is he sick? Is there something wrong in there? So they waited at the point of, of embarrassment. But when he did not open the door of the room, they took a key and unlocked the bathroom door, and there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. And while they waited to the point of embarrassment, Ehud got away. He snuck out and he passed by those idols and escaped all the way to Sarah. Wow, what a story. What in the world is is going on here with Eglon and Ehud? Would you track with me a little bit longer here? Here's what I want you to know is that God can use us in the middle of our mundane lives to do something great for him. I have looked out and have seen three accountants so far in this room. God bless you, it's the last job in the world I would want is being an accountant. It is so mundane to me, it is so particular, it is so, um, so small scale, so detail oriented. I mean, I can't balance my checkbook, much less somebody else's you know, bank account. That thought of being an accountant in my thought, in my world is the most mundane job you could have, but you might feel like your job, whatever you're doing, is mundane. It might feel like you're just kind of going through the motions Monday through Friday, eight to five, just kind of living this life that 
Maybe you wanted to live, maybe you didn't want to live, and maybe you're in the business world, maybe you're in school a lot longer than you wanted to be in school, maybe you feel like you're in a job that's a dead-end job, it's something you never dreamed for, something you never hoped for, and you're thinking, God, is this really the plan you have for my life? I want you to know that God reached down, in my opinion, to the most mundane job in the world, an accountant, and said, I can use you for something great. can use you for something great. Do not, friends, discount the sovereignty of God in your lives. Because God often loves to reach down in the mundane, everyday morose and say, I want to use a man or use a woman just like you. What we call weakness, I want to tell you, God calls usable. What we might call a weakness in our lives or a handicap in our lives or a frailty in our lives, God says, no, 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 that's not a weakness. That's something I can use. Is it kind of bizarre to you that we actually know what hand Ehud used? That he was a left-handed man. Do you see that? He was the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, and he was left-handed. This was the deliverer that God had called up. Why in the world would we need to know and I believe every word in God's word is there for purpose. Why would we need to know that this man was a left-handed accountant. He was a left-handed man who was bringing tribute to, to people. Let me just tell you, because he's a Benjaminite. And when Benjamin was born to Jacob and to Rachel, he was born in a little town you are very familiar with, Bethlehem. And when Jacob and Rachel made their way into the promised land, you know Bethlehem is right outside of Jerusalem, there in the land that God had promised. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob, whose name is actually turns to Israel, the only son of Israel that is born in the promised land. It had been a miserable pregnancy for Rachel. She was sick. She was traveling while she was pregnant. Moms, amen, that sounds miserable, right? Traveling, being on the back perhaps of a camel in a caravan. And they made it all the way to, to Bethlehem. And there Rachel gives birth to this young boy named Benjamin. But she did not want to name him Benjamin. She wanted to name him Ben-Onai. Because Ben-Onai in Hebrew means son of my sadness or son of my sorrow. It had been a sorrowful nine months for her. In fact, Rachel's about to die. As soon as she gives birth to Benjamin, she's about to die there in Bethlehem. She will not make it out of Bethlehem. So as she is dying, looking at her young boy, she says, let's name him Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. And fortunately, Jacob steps in and goes, we're not going to name my son sorry son or sorrowful son. We're going to name him Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. So that's the legacy. That's the lineage of Ehud, the left-handed Benjaminite. For him, being in the tribe of Benjamin and being left-handed would have meant he was handicapped, he was lesser, he had a weakness, he had a frailty. And that's even true in our language today. When you think about it, if you get an answer correct, you say, hey, that's a right answer. If all your friends take off without you, you get left out, right? You get left behind. If you're a little crazy, you're out in left field. So even today, kind of right is like a stronger word than the word left is. Even the Bible is the same thing. And the prophet Isaiah said that God has saved you with his righteous right arm. Remember when Jesus ascended and went back to be seated at the, at the, at the right hand of God? It was a position of strength. It was a position of favor. Uh, it was a position of, of, of power, in the same way, remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 when he is separating his people from not his people, the sheep from the goats. The goats go to the left-hand side. 
And God's people go to the right-hand side. For you guys who have taken Latin, or you ladies who have taken Latin, the word for right in Latin is the word dexter. It's where we get our word dexterity, which means like graceful strength or graceful skill, kind of like Katie Cannon last night, right? Graceful strength and graceful skill. That's what dexterity means. And so in Latin, the word for right is the word dexter. You know what the word for Latin, uh, in, in Latin for left is? Sinister, <laughs> like evil, wicked, right? So if you're ambidextrous, and you can use both hands, what that is in Latin is you have two right arms. Congratulations, you don't have a right arm and left arm. You're so awesome, you have two right arms. You're ambidextrous, two dexters, if you will. You have two right arms. So here is this guy being born into the son of my right arm, right hand tribe, and his name is is Ehud, the left-handed accountant. I'm just wondering this morning, do some of you feel like you have a weakness or a frailty or a liability or a handicap? I have to be very careful when I make fun of left-handed people. I married a left-handed woman, so I'm, I'm being very brave since she's not in this service and she was in the service earlier. But, but it's really interesting. Even today in, in, in culture, you, do, do, you would never extend your left hand in the Middle East to anybody. There are people in the Middle East, if they see that their son is riding left-handed, they will tie his left hand behind his back and force him to use a right hand. That is the culture that Ehud is growing up in. That's the culture and the lifestyle and the society that he is in. And he is seen as having this, this weakness. He is a lesser person. Have you ever felt like a lesser person before? Maybe for you it's a reading disorder. Maybe you're dyslexic. Maybe your sight is going. Maybe your hearing is going. Maybe you're autistic. Maybe you don't run as fast as everybody else. Maybe you feel very socially awkward when you're in a circle of friends. What do you consider a weakness in your own life? A handicap, a frailty in your own life? Because if you walked in here today feeling like a lesser person, I've got great news. What you might consider a weakness, God calls very usable in his kingdom. In our weakness and in our handicaps, God gives us two things. He gives us power. I want you to see that on the screen in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 14. After Moses had given the excuse of his weakness, after Moses had given his excuse of his frailty that he was a stutterer and he could not speak well, look what God says to him in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14. Then the Lord's anger burned. There's the flashpoint again against Moses. And he said, God said to him, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? He's a priest. I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. There's the sovereignty of God. God saw this happening. And his heart will be glad when he sees you. And you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I will help both of you speak. And I will teach you what to do. And he will speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. And Moses, if that's not enough, take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. Here's a man who stands before God and says, God, you can't use me. I'm a lesser person. I have a handicap. I have a weakness. I have a liability. I don't speak well. And you're asking me to be the speaker 
to all these people to speak on your behalf to these people. God says, I've got this handled because I'm a God of power. I've given you a brother, Aaron, the Levite. He can speak well, but you will tell him what to say. I will help both of you, God says, and you will stand before the people and instruct them. And I love this. And on top of all that, Moses, I'm going to give you a special staff. And we know the rest of that story, don't we? Through that staff, God's power was displayed. So if you're here today and you feel like you haven't walked with God long enough, you feel like you're brand new to church, you feel like you have a lack of education, just know that in your weakness, God gives power. And here's the second word, God gives a special grace. Jesus spoke to Paul, and Paul wrote it down for us. And he told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 5, Paul writes, to keep me from becoming conceited. There was given me a thorn. And theologians, the last 2,000 years, have debated what is that thorn. I love that God didn't tell us what that thorn was. So we could kind of fill in the blank for our own lives. Some uh, think that it was perhaps a speech impediment. Some thought that Paul was going blind. Some thought that he had epilepsy. I've heard everything across the board of what this might be. I love that it's left vague enough that you and I can insert our own thorn, our own weakness, our own struggle into there. There was given me a thorn in my flesh to buffet me, to sharpen me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord, take this thorn away, take this handicap away, take this weakness away from me. But he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore I will boast. I'm going to brag about my handicap. I'm going to boast of my thorn all the more gladly about this weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. So if you're here today and you feel lesser, you're here today and you feel like you have a handicap, you're here today and you feel like there's some weakness in your life, just know that God gives a special power, a special grace to those who see that weakness in themselves. So Ehud, he takes a knife, maybe it looks something like this. You'll never rush the stage again, will you, if you thought about that. Don't try to take down this pastor. You never know what's up here on this, on this podium. My dad collects knives. He collects knives, and he collects Dr. Pepper memorabilia of all, of all things. I used to make fun of him until I saw the worth of all these knives and the unbelievable worth of old Dr. Pepper bottles. So I no longer make fun of him. I just tell him, make sure you remember me and your inheritance one day. When you go on to be with the Lord, you may be paying for my kids' college tuition one day. This is a, a, a knife that may have looked very similar Honestly, except it was a double-edged sword, a double-edged knife, about 18 inches, a cubit, uh, maybe 16 to 18 inches long. There wasn't a hilt, it seems, on that knife that Ehud had because the knife went all the way into the fat belly rolls. Did you remember that of Eglon? It even goes out his back on the other side. This is a knife uh, from the 1890s, maybe early, early, early 1900s. It came from France. And I want you to understand what Ehud did. Remember he might have seen himself as a lesser man because he is from the tribe of son of my right hand, and yet he was left-handed. The Bible says that he put that knife on his right thigh. How could an accountant make it past the guards with an 18-inch knife on his right thigh to have a presence alone with the king? My best guess is that he declared himself as a Benjaminite, that all the people, probably the guards, perhaps searched his left thigh to make sure there wasn't 
a knife over there because certainly Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, he would be right-handed. He is from the tribe of the right-handed people. By the way, you know later on there's an army of 700 left-handed Benjaminites that go to war. I think they were inspired by this handicapped man with a left hand, and they raised up a whole horsemen, 700 horsemen who were all left-handed, who never missed a shot. We'll get to that in a couple of years. That's later on in the, in the book of Judges. So here is Ehud, the left-handed guy. He reaches down with his left hand because they would have never searched a Benjaminite's right thigh, and he pulls out that sword, and he thrusts it into the fat belly of Eglon, the man who was named for a fat calf. It goes in. He dies. Ehud is running at this point, but look where Ehud or Ehud is running to. The weak now become strong. Look at Judges chapter 3. Look at verse 26. Let's wrap this story up. And while they waited, Ehud got away. And he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills. Huge. With him from the hills with Ehud, the left-handed accountant, leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. And so they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. And at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, who were all vigorous and strong men, and not a man escaped. And that day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Do you understand what's happening? This left-handed Benjaminite kills the king, runs into the hills of Ephraim. He grabs a trumpet and plays a battle cry, jubilee cry, that probably sounded something just like this. Thank you, Ehud, so much. That was Reuben Ross, missionary to Israel. He actually is a shofar that he is playing. So Ehud probably sounded something just like that when he played a battle cry on the shofar. The left-handed accountant grabs a trumpet, then leads his people down to secure victory from the Moabites. I'm going to wrap up quickly. Here's the three things I want you to know before we leave. It was a call to courageous living, and Ehud was the standard bearer of bravery. Here was a man who perhaps all of his life was told he was lesser, he had a weakness, he had a handicap, he was a liability, and this same man grabbed the trumpet. I wanted to make sure you saw this. He was the one who led the charge, not just with the trumpet, but with his feet. I wonder how often we say things that sounds so spiritual, sounds so brave, sounds so courageous, and yet our feet never move. And Ehud sounded the trumpet, and this accountant led the men into charge against the Moabites. Number two, it was a familiar sound of jubilee. That horn blast that you heard just then was a sound of call to arms, to charge into battle. It was also the sound of jubilee, the, the horn blast of jubilee. 
when the land is reclaimed by the original owner. The land had been in the hand of Eglon for a generation. The Moabites had decimated the land. Israelites were now the slaves to the Moabites. And then the left-handed accountant gets up and blasts a trumpet of jubilee. And it means the land is now going back over to who? To Israel. The original owner of the land. The year of jubilee was the 50th year in the cycle of Israel. And on the 50th year, that trumpet would blast. If the land had been owned by somebody else, it went back to the original owner. Prisoners were set free. Captives were released from prison. Listen to this. If you had credit card debt, it was completely wiped out. Don't you wish we had Jubilee here in America, right? All debts were wiped away. Anything that you owed, all sins were forgiven. When that trumpet blasted, it meant the land is now returning to the original owner. Don't lose me yet because we see Jesus all in this story. Third and last point this morning, it is a reminder of another trumpet call that will happen one day. The trumpet will sound. The land will revert back to the original owner who is God himself, the God of all heaven, the God of earth, and the God of all creation. We will be reminded that we are slaves set free, that we are prisoners let out of prison. A reminder with that holy trumpet that all of our debt has been forgiven. All of our sins have been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. One day there will be another trumpet sound. Look at the screen as I read this trumpet sound to you from Revelation chapter 11. And the seventh angel sounded his jubilee trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. It's reverting back to the original owner and of his Christ. And this Christ will reign forever and forever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God, they fell down on their faces and worshiped him saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Amen. That trumpet will sound one day. That trumpet will sound one day, a day of jubilee, and the earth will revert back to its original owner. And the captives will be reminded that we have been set free by the blood and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the question I beg of you this morning. Is there an excuse that you need to lay down? Is there a weakness that you have continued to bring before the Lord? God, I can't serve you. I don't see well. God, I can't serve you. I'm old. God, I can't serve you. I'm new to my faith. God, I can't serve you. I'm so busy in college. I'm so busy with my family. I'm so busy at work. I can't serve you. I don't read very well. I don't speak very well. I don't know all the answers in the Bible. I don't even know. It took me 10 minutes to find the book of Judges. I I don't know anything about God's word. Can I just ask you, is it time today for you to lay down an excuse of why you don't serve God? Because a left-handed accountant can teach us a great lesson this morning of what it looks like to truly be a conqueror. How about this? What excuse are you using to not worship Jesus? What excuse are you using to not love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Would you bow your head and bow your heart with me, please, and let's pray. Father, crazy story. 
amazing. The big king who worshiped himself and his appetites and his desires, and a man that we might call weak or handicapped or lesser, becomes the deliverer that you call up. God, we're beginning to see a pattern here in your word that you use people and call up people that we would never even consider. God, thank you that in our weakness, whatever that might be, from dyslexia to blindness to anxiety to lack of education to unemployment, God, whatever that might be for us today, we lay down any excuse that we have offered up to you in the past so that we can serve you and we can follow you. God, remind us that you love to call us up in the middle of our mundane lives to be used for your great name's sake. God, use us. Call us. We surrender. We let go. God, your word has gone out. Therefore, we now respond. Because of Christ and through Christ we pray.